Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I can't wait for tonight. We're going to have a, that's when the party begins. I mean, this is sort of a prelude to it. But uh, we're going to have some friends joining us from different parts of the country. And uh, the cry is going to be with us tonight. A group that started out of this fellowship. So we're excited for that reunion. I want to begin by reading to you something from the Wall Street Journal. It's a little article that says, The elms in South Park, Pittsburgh must come down because they're obstructing a monument to Joyce Kilmer. The branches are so high that passerbys can no longer read the inscription. The inscription is, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. You understand the paradox with that one. They're going to chop down the trees, sacrifice the trees for the poem that says, Boy, trees are so cool. That's what a paradox is. Now let me give you a dictionary description. A paradox is, number one, a statement that seemingly is contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet is perhaps true. Second definition. A self-contradictory statement. I'll give you a few. Exact estimate is a self-contradictory statement. Plastic glasses. A working vacation. Rap music. I couldn't resist. A paradox is an enigma. It is a bafflement. It's a contradiction to common thought. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church here in the first chapter about the paradox of God's call and God's choice. I mean, here you have Corinth, a worldly, wicked, sinful, ungodly place. And yet in the midst of that town was a church with a group of people called to be moral, godly representatives of the kingdom. It was paradoxical. In Corinth, you have a culture that extols human wisdom, and yet Paul will write that when God makes a choice, it's contrary to human wisdom. So let's get a little sneak preview. Go to verse 18 of chapter 1 and notice with me. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? You recall, maybe you've even committed to memory, that very famous text of Scripture in Isaiah 55 where the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
neither are my ways your ways, but as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. That is, God thinks and acts contrary to how people act and think. Only God could take a place like Corinth and establish a center of worship in that wicked town. Only God could take a guy like Paul, a radical persecutor, and turn him into Paul the great apostle, the preacher. And I'll add to that, only God would take a uh, tin temple, an astroturf sports center like this, and turn it into a center of worship. Only God would take racquetball courts that were on the other side of this wall and turn them into Sunday school classrooms. Only God would think of taking an upstairs bar and turning it into pastor's offices. (laughs) Only God would take a, a radio signal that broadcast sex, drugs, and rock and roll and turn it into a radio signal that broadcasts the Word of God and salvation and rock and roll as well. You know, God's entire mode of operations is paradoxical. You might say that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom, a backwards kingdom. It's a kingdom where the weak are strong, the humble are exalted, the last are first, the poor are rich, and the fools are made wise. Charles Colson writes, The kingdom of God is a kingdom of paradox, where through the ugly defeat of a cross, a holy God is utterly glorified. Victory comes through defeat, healing through brokenness, and finding self through losing self. Now let me take you to this paragraph in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll pick it up at the 26th verse. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And God, or and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. In that paragraph, Paul talks about the upside-down kingdom, the paradox of God's choice. And in verse 26, he calls upon the Corinthians to look at something, to observe something to make an observation about God's calling. In the next two verses, he goes through a little more in-depth God's selection. Verse 26, this is what God doesn't choose. 27 and 28, this is what God does choose. Then in verse 29 through 31, he tells us why. The explanation is given. Look with me at verse 26 more carefully. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, 
are called. Now imagine yourself as an exclusive member of God's selection committee. That's right, you have a special job. You've been given a job on a special committee to find the profile of the kind of person that heaven is looking for. And so you make your list. And you might, at the top of the list, say, smart people. God is looking for smart people. After all, God is omniscient. He knows everything. It only makes sense that he'll want to surround himself with intelligent people. And then you might add to that, good-looking people. After all, God is resplendent, glorious, and majestic. Heaven must be beautiful, thus God would certainly want to surround himself with beautiful people. You might say, well, God wants energetic people, movers and shakers, so I'll put that on my list. He is all-powerful. He's going to want powerful individuals that reflect him. And you could add to that noble people, wealthy people, high-born. After all, God is God. You don't surround God with riffraff, but only the best. So you make your list and you hand it into the office in heaven. The next day, you get it back, ripped to shreds. Every one of your suggestions has been rejected. Paul is telling the Corinthians, hey, look around. Look at whom God has called. In fact, notice that. He says, you see your calling, brethren. Klesis is the word. And here it's used as a noun for a group of people. It's not the process of calling as much as the invitation that has been accepted by this group called the called or the calling. You see your calling, brethren, those who have received it and are following Christ. His point is this. We are called, but we are common. We are common. There's not many wise Not many noble, not many mighty. Paul is telling these Corinthian believers, he's saying, if God needs man's wisdom and God needs man's glory, then why did he call you? I mean, look around at your calling. Now, you know, the early church did not have a, a lot of nobility in it. Not a lot of the highborn Not a lot of the best and most famous. Now, they had some. I want to be fair. There were some aristocracy. There was some nobility, etc., etc. But whenever this type of an individual came and joined the ranks of the church, it was so rare, a note was made of it. As an example, Acts chapter 8, we read about the Ethiopian treasurer. He was in the court of Ethiopia. Acts 13, Menaean is mentioned, a boyhood friend of Herod. Acts 13, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Crete. Acts 17, Dionysius the Areopagite, say that ten times. He was uh, this notable person of Athens. So it doesn't say not any mighty, not any noble. It just says not many mighty, not many. So a lot of people are saved by that M. There's a great story about the evangelist John Wesley. He had a a very particular helper to his ministry named Lady Huntington. I've got some works where she is mentioned. Lady Huntington was British aristocracy. She was of the noble class. 
She gave a lot of her money, a lot of her time to Wesley and his endeavors. And she writes, How thankful I am that Paul didn't say that not any noble are called. Therefore, I'm only going to heaven through the letter M. But as we look throughout church history, we have to concur. Not many mighty, noble, etc. were called. This is the paradox of God's calling. That a mighty God would surround himself with ordinary folk. Average, everyday Joe. Mark chapter 12 tells us about the ministry of Jesus. And the common people heard him gladly. Take the disciples. Were they the best of society? The who's who of Jerusalem? No, they were largely what? Fishermen. One was an IRS guy, right? Tax collector, Matthew. So you didn't have a great group. And yet those were the very ones that Jesus chose. Now probably, and I'm going to venture this guess, and I'm probably right, I may be wrong perhaps, but I'm going to venture to say that nobody in this auditorium right now is in the who's who of America. I may be wrong. You may be in that book, and you may want to tell me afterwards, so so I'll know that. (laughs) But I doubt that anyone here is in the who's who of America. And you know what? Frankly... Nobody cares, do we? Because it's not about who's who, it's about who's he. That's sort of the whole point of this text. Look around at your calling, he would say. He's saying God does choose people and God does use people. However, he doesn't seem to be looking for the A-class or the stellar or the extraordinary, but rather those who are flawed and imperfect make up the bulk of those who are in this calling. I love great photographers. One of them is Yusuf Karsh. He was an Armenian photographer who used large format cameras, 5x7, 8x10 negatives, which renders great resolution, picks up every detail. Yusuf Karsh uh, photographed famous people, and he did a, a series of photographs, 90 pictures, called Portraits of Greatness, the most famous people that were in the world at that time. And it's been noted that in Karsh's 90 photographs, that 70 who posed were physically unattractive. And 35 had moles and warts. Now, if you know anything about Karsh, he would construct his lighting in the portrait as if to accentuate the moles and the warts. 13 had liver spots, 20 were photographed with acne, and 2 with exposing scars. And again, large format negatives, so the details were like, eee. He was making a point. These wonderful people who have been used, if you get close to them, they're scarred. There's imperfections, flaws. You know that every person in the Bible, Abraham, David, Peter, every one of them that God uses, you look close enough and you'll see the same thing. You'll find flaws. You'll find imperfections. In fact, I'll say this. The imperfection adds to the mystery. And as we'll see, adds to the glory of God. Think of it this way. Imagine a modern doctor, physician, surgeon, in a modern 
operating suite at a hospital. He's going to perform an operation. The operation is successful. At the end of the operation, you thank the doctor, but you think in your mind, okay, he's been trained in medical school. He has the best tools. This is America. Sterile field operating suite. Take that same doctor to the African jungle. Give him a Swiss army knife. If he could perform that same operation with that imperfect, flawed, limited tool, you would say not, what must be a cool Swiss army knife. No, you'd say, this doctor's got to be amazing if he can do that. The imperfection of the tools and the situation demands we give more honor to the one who's doing the work. Now look at the next two verses with me after looking at whom God doesn't select making the observation of this paradox, we look at the selection. Verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. That the things which... And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things which are. You get the drift. He's saying, hey, look inside God's toolbox. What do you find? Broken hammers, crooked rulers, bent screwdrivers, and a whole lot of nuts. (laughs) And it's not like God was just sort of left with that and he said, this is all I have. No, he said, I picked every one of those. I made a deliberate choice to have the foolish and the broken and this list that is mentioned here. Look at the list. Foolish things. It's the opposite of worldly wise things. He mentions weak things. That would be the opposite of strong, capable, mighty. Base and despise things. That's the opposite of notoriety. All of those described in this list would make up what the world would say is a bunch of nobodies. It's God's choice. In A.D. 170, a philosopher by the name of Celsus, and if you go to Ephesus, there's a library built in his honor. still there. It's the most impressive structure in that town. Celsus was an ardent unbeliever, was angry at what he saw in the growth of Christian churches around him, and very mockingly he wrote of Christian churches. Listen to what he writes of your ancient brothers and sisters. Quote, Let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible. For all that kind we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is lacking in sense and culture, if anyone is a fool, let him come boldly to become a Christian. We see them in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest, or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp or worms convening in the mud. Now before some of you think, oh no, we don't want the world to think that of us. Understand that very often Jesus would say, that's okay. You know how the Jesus sometimes when he preached would sort of stop in the middle of a sermon and just pray to his father? 
I'll give you an example. Matthew eleven twenty five. Jesus has been speaking to the crowds and he stops and he looks heavenward and says, Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding the truth from those who think themselves so wise and clever and for revealing it to the childlike. Now, why is that? Why is all that we've been saying a fact for this reason? There's an absence of pride among the weak and the foolish. See, those who are arrogant don't know their need. They're so great and they're awesome and they want you to know it. The weak and the foolish and the broken, those are the ones who are more apt to come, as Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. They come in that common, weak state to a great God. Now, let me be more frank. A simple, uneducated, untalented Christian is wiser than an unbelieving Ph.D. scoffer. Because the simple believer knows God's grace, knows that he or she is forgiven, knows the love of God, knows where he or she will be after this life ends, and they'll be eternally with God. The unbelieving scoffer knows nothing beyond his own intellect, mind, and experience. And certainly there's no hope for the future. Isn't it funny how we Christians often think, I mean, we'll think or say something like this, boy, wouldn't it be great if some wonderful, like the best athlete in the world or or the, the ultimate rock star would fall in love with Jesus Christ? You know, we need that, that kind because they'll be our poster boy or poster girl for, for Christ, somebody famous or noble, etc. In fact, we'll even stoop to finding songs that they write that just say, there's a spirit out there somewhere. We'll go, see, they're a Christian. You know, we'll take anything. Because we somehow want to say that if only somebody famous or some great scientist or rock and roll were saved, that's what we need. What's interesting, and I'm pointing out to you, is that Jesus never thought that way. And again, look at his disciples. In fact, you know who Jesus said was the greatest person who ever lived? A guy by the name of John the Baptist. No formal training. No advanced degrees. No political clout. He lived out in the desert, ate bugs. And yet Jesus said of him, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So we see that God's choices are contrary to human reason. They're counterintuitive. They're paradoxical. When God decided to send his son into this world, did he send him to Rome? Did he think, it's got to be in the best palace in Rome, in a noble class, or how about Athens, the philosophical center of the world? No, he sent him to where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem? That's where all the hicks live. There's a bunch of sheep breeders out there. Nobody knows about that place. Move it closer at least to Jerusalem. You know, it's five miles out. Bring Bring him closer. Foolish things. Samuel was dispatched by God to select the new king of Israel after Saul had departed from the faith. He goes to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. 
Jesse brings all his boys in. There's the prophet Samuel, and he looks at the lineup, and the first one he sees is the oldest. His name is Eliab. Eliab was handsome, tall. I mean, he looked like a king. He looked like he was Schwarzenegger-esque. He was the governator. He would be like, yeah, this guy's a leader. And Eliab thought in his mind, surely this is the Lord's anointed. God interrupts that thought process and says, do not look at his appearance, nor at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And you know know what I've always loved about you? What I've always loved about you is you never seem to care about outward appearances here. I mean, you came to this place when there was asphalt, not carpet. By the way, you peel up this carpet, it's still asphalt. Not even cement. Asphalt. You came here when there weren't any ceiling tiles. It was just this batting stuffed up there. And I remember some of it falling down on people's heads during services. You came when there was no air conditioning system. Imagine that. No air conditioning in this place. You came and there was no parking lot right here. Some of you parked blocks away and walked. But you didn't seem to care because to you, it, it wasn't about the, the outward. It wasn't about the lunch sack. It was about what's inside the sack. The lunch. Now, over the years, the lunch sack, we've prettied it up, put glass and stucco and stone. But you drive around this place, you can still see this tin shell underneath it. It's still pretty much the same. And what's great is you never cared because you always cared about what mattered the most. And that's what's inside. Well, now look at the last few verses with me. After calling them to an observation, after considering the selection, he now gives an explanation. Here's why. Here's God's rationale in this choice. So that no flesh, verse 29, no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So now we get the reason the rationale of God in making the choices that He makes. It's to remove any possibility of bragging. Okay, now think for a moment. (laughs) Think how frustrating it would be and discouraging it would be if God chose only the smartest, the wisest, the best-looking, etc. Imagine us. We'd be going like this. Yeah, God used that person. Well, no wonder. Look, look at the package. Look at all they have to offer God. No wonder. And can you imagine how boring heaven would be? There'd be no testimonies in heaven, just bragamonies. How'd you get here? I was perfect. Oh, you too. (laughs) What is that? You know how it's going to be? How'd you get here? Yeah, I'm amazed. I'm amazed. By God's grace, I'm here. He did it all. So it's to remove all of the bragging so that none can brag about us, so that everybody can brag about God. And God works this way and makes these choices 
so that he gets all the credit. Now, some of you in hearing that might think, what, is God on some ego trip? Does he, like, need to be affirmed all the time? He gets really angry when there's competition? No, here's the reason. The reason God deserves or, or gets all the credit is he deserves all the credit. It's just, it's just right. Foolish and weak man can do nothing for himself. God has done absolutely everything. Paul reminds us, Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He wants no bragging. And then he goes on to say, For we are his workmanship. Now, did you know that the Corinthian church, the one who received this letter that we're reading, the Corinthian church was guilty of glorifying men. That's right. They, they, they lined up under their favorite preachers and they divided over men. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. And Paul in chapter 1 says, you know what? You're actually robbing God of glory when you make it about the person rather than about the Lord. John Calvin reminds us, everything that is at all deserving of praise proceeds from God. So God is just doing this, choosing and using this type of person so that he'll get the glory because he deserves all the glory. Jeremiah chapter 9, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and he knows me that I am the Lord. So, God's in the business of taking the world's nobodies and they all become His somebodies. His toolbox. His ambassadors. So now, when we go to Corinth and we think, wow, there's a great work of God that happened. There's even a book in the Bible called 1 Corinthians. They weren't perfect, but there's a church that started here in Corinth. That's God. Only God could do that. Or when we go to Albuquerque and look at this church, we go, only God can do that. And some of you are thinking, I know Skip, believe me, only God can do that. <laughs> Remember the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead and they didn't know he had risen? And they're up in Galilee, they went fishing. It says they fished all night and caught nothing. There's a stranger on the shore, happened to be Jesus, they didn't know it. Early morning, Jesus said, now they fished all night and caught nothing. Remember? He goes, hey, you guys have any food? They said, no. And Jesus said, well, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. Now, come on, that's foolish. You think three feet's going to make a difference? We fished all night, caught nothing. So we'll take the nets and put them three feet over here. Foolish. They did it. The nets were starting to break. It was so full Peter was a little slow on the uptake, but he figured it out. It dawned on him. There's only one explanation, and he goes, It's the Lord. There's only one explanation for throwing your nets from one side to the other and seeing that. It's got to be the Lord. You and I look at what God has done over the years in saving people and starting churches and all the different ministries out of here. There's only one explanation. It's the Lord. And we give Him the glory for that.
Now, there's a lesson as we close for those who serve God. Now I'm talking to anyone who serves the Lord. You might be on our staff. You might be a pastor on our staff. You might be a visiting pastor to this service. You might be listening by radio. You might be volunteering in a discipleship role. Anybody who serves the Lord, listen carefully, never touch God's glory. Never touch God's glory. When somebody heaps God's what praise that is deserving of God on you, treat it like a hot potato. It's like, I can't hold it. Throw it up as soon as you get it. Whew, thank you, Lord. He deserves it. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that people will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But now here's, here's the other part of this truth. If you feel weak, foolish, if you're broken and beat up, you have great, great future ahead of you. Great hopes in store. You think, Skip, you didn't understand. This is all good rhetoric, nice little sermon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my life is so bruised. I've been so beaten up. I feel so foolish and so weak. Congratulations. You're in the perfect spot. God is in the business of, he say, ooh, you'd be great in my toolbox. Here's one of my favorite poems ever. Brings out this message. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bidding, good folks?' he cried. "'Who'll start the bidding for me? "'A dollar, two dollars, two, who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, but no.' From the room far back, a gray-haired man stepped forward and picked up the bow. And wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angels sing. When the music ceased, the auctioneer, in a voice that was quiet and low, said, Now what am I bid for the old violin, as he held it up with the bow? A thousand dollars! Two thousand! Who make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. And the people cheered, but some of them asked, We do not quite understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, The touch of the master's hand. And many a man with his life out of tune, battered and scarred by sin, are auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a song, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and he's almost gone. But the master comes, and the thoughtless crowd can never quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. God isn't looking for a Stradivarius. And if you're thinking, well, I am one. (laughs) Well, great. You might be part of that exception. Not many. You're one, but you're an exception. I don't think God's looking for a Stradivarius. God's looking for a beater, a common instrument. 
He'll turn it into a Stradivarius. He'll turn it into something that really works and sings and reflects His glory. But He's saying, come just like you are. So, maybe you're in a condition today where you feel pretty beat up by sin and your past, choices you've made. They haven't been good choices. You haven't actually been following Jesus Christ lately. And right now, you're willing to admit that you need God's help. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to make a decision to turn your life over to Jesus Christ. You might think, I'm too smart for that. Too wise. I'm too noble. Too bad. It's a shame. Because the wisest thing you could ever do is to humbly, like a child, take Jesus at His word and become born again. And come and give your life to Him. Or maybe, just maybe, you made some choice similar to that years ago. You didn't know, was at a youth camp somewhere, you threw your pine cone in the fire, you sang kumbaya and you felt really good for one night. But you didn't see lasting change. And today, you want to come back to Him. I'm going to give you that opportunity. Let's all stand and we'll pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You in the name of Jesus for all the work You've done through us and in us because of You. You've done it. To You, to God be the glory, great things He hath done. And now, Father, we're asking You to continue Your work here this morning. Father, we're just going to pray that those who need that touch from You, need to come to Christ, need to give Jesus Christ their lives, would do that. They'd surrender. They'd not hold back today. But they'd take that step, those steps, and that walk of faith to come forward here and give their lives to Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.